0: The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, Pastor Teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Sunnyvale, California. Well, like I said, we would be—we're going to go into a, a new book in the New Testament. We finished Acts, and then we did a series on Israel, and then a couple of other uh, thematic issues related to the Bible. I've had many people inquire. So, what's next? What are you going to preach on next? What book next? And I've had many suggestions as well, which I welcome suggestions and. I think just about all the suggestions were a book in the Bible, so that was good. So I think we're going to keep it there. And there's so many to choose from. They're all good. They're all my favorite book. Uh, and probably you too if you're, you're a Christian. So, but I wanted to do something a little different, but also that made sense. We left the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts in jail. How unkind of us. And at Acts 28 where Luke is there with him and some of his friends and he is in house arrest and he's been that's where we left him last in Acts 28. We know that he was in prison in Rome waiting to see Nero, of all people, so that he could get a hearing because he's not guilty and yet he's been confined for over two years time and again for not violating the law, just being a Christian. So that's where we left Paul, under house arrest, probably shackled to some Roman soldiers there over in Rome. And he's got, he's got some freedom and liberty and uh, Luke is with him and a couple of other companions And for two entire years, we know that Paul was there in Rome, in prison, maybe even got his day before Nero and probably was released and then did a little more ministry before he got imprisoned again. But anyway, so during that time in that two-year imprisonment in Rome where we left Paul, Paul sat down and began to write out some of our New Testament epistles. Paul wrote 13 of the letters in the New Testament, and I don't know if you've ever noticed how they're... Put in your Bible. you got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Well, why are those there? Well, those are about Christ. Well, why is it Matthew first, and then Matthew, Mark, and then Luke, and then John? Well, that's because that's how they were written chronologically in history. Matthew wrote his gospel first, and then Mark, and then Luke in about 61 AD, and then John wrote his last. So they're put in there chronologically. Then the epistles of Paul, I don't know if you've ever noticed, they're not uh, put in the New Testament chronologically. It's kind of like they're put in there in terms of how long they are. So You've got Romans, 16 chapters, kind of on the front end of his 13 epistles, and then you go through. And then at the very end of his 13 epistles is the smallest epistle. It's called Philemon. So that's where we're going to be today. So maybe that'll help you find it. Just try to find Paul's epistles and just keep flipping until you get to the very end. So I would ask you to open your Bible to Philemon, Philemon chapter 1, because there's only one chapter, and we're going to look at this amazing book just by a show of hands out of sheer curiosity raise your hand if you have done devotions recently out of philemon recently okay just uh one two and a half people okay so that's what i expected so now another question if you've never really studied philemon in detail go ahead and raise your hand okay that's wow that's a lot of folks I've actually never preached. I've taught on Philemon, just kind of overview, one shot, big picture. Never preached through it verse by verse. So that's new for me, quite edifying. I've actually, I was trying to remember, have I ever heard a sermon preached on the book of Philemon or a series of sermons? I couldn't remember. doesn't mean it hasn't happened, but I'm thinking, I don't think, not until this week. Hadn't heard a sermon on it. So I thought that would be a valuable study. So let's go ahead and look at Philemon. We're going to spend some time on Philemon. I don't even know how long, how many weeks. Uh, there is 25 verses there, but today we're just kind of kicking it off. I'll just call it a generic introduction. I do have an outline there. I don't want that to confuse you. Don't be deluded into thinking we're going to get to verse 10 today. That's just kind of an outline of the first 10 verses that kind of go together before the meat of the letter. So that's why I wanted that to be in there. We will probably look at the first three verses today with some important introductory matters, and that's where I would like to start. So you've got this. Kind of an obscure, very short letter that not a whole lot of people are familiar with. Philemon, who is he? What is it? Who wrote this? Why is this in my Bible? Never noticed it before. Why are we going to look at Philemon? Why is it worth it? Well, reason number one is because I do want you to turn to 2 Timothy. Just go to your left. if you have one of those old paper traditional Bibles? 2 Timothy chapter 3. Why, why study Philemon? How come you didn't go to Romans, Pastor Cliff? More important books in the Bible. Well, because of 2 Timothy 3.16. So Paul wrote this letter, gave it to a church and an individual, and then somebody preserved it, held on to it, safeguarded it, protected it, copied it, perpetuated it, eventually added it to other epistles that Paul wrote and then other books in the Bible. And so the God's New Testament began to grow as a canon, we call it. And 2,000 years later, here it is. But well, how, did, how did Philemon make it into the canon in the New Testament? Why is it in there? Was that some human's unilateral decision? It's a good question. Why do we have the books in the Bible that we do? Well from a Christian point of view, and also the testimony of Scripture and Jesus Himself, is, yeah, humans put the Bible together. Humans wrote the Bible, and at the same time, supernaturally, by way of providence and miracle, God superintended all of that with His Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God. So who put Philemon in our Bible? God did through the providence of the Holy Spirit. Who wrote Philemon? The Apostle Paul and God did through the superintending guidance of His Holy Spirit. So that's why Philemon ended up in the Bible, which means it's just as important as any other book. One question I like to ask my seminary students, or just Sunday school classes, or any Christian just to kind of trick them, is I'll ask like, so which Bible book is more important? Malachi, Romans, or Revelation? And like 99.9% of the time, most Christians will say, well, Romans, of course, or I'll say, what book's more important, Genesis, the Gospel of John, or Obadiah? Well, they'll, hands down, well, the Gospel of John, that's how you get saved. And then I always go, ah, and then I, wrong answer. What do you mean wrong answer? Well, actually, they're all equally important. How do I know that? Because of this verse right here. Let's look at it. Second Timothy three, sixteen. The Apostle Paul writing to Timothy, reminding Timothy, Timothy who grew up being exposed to Old Testament Scripture thanks to his mother, probably his grandmother as well, who were Jewish, now probably Jewish Christians. That's how he got saved, through the truth of God's word. And then Paul makes this assessment of Scripture through the power of the Holy Spirit, verse 16. All Scripture, all the writings, all the Old Testament writings that you have, Timothy, that the Jews had, that's what he means, all Scripture. So the entire Old Testament, and by this time, Paul had written actually most of his 13 epistles. So he includes that as well because he told people regarding the books of the Bible that he was writing, this is scripture. This is from God. I'm an apostle. This is authoritative. This is binding. This belongs in the Bible. This is equal with scripture. So when Paul says all scripture, he means the entire Old Testament and also the epistles that he was writing as an apostle that have been preserved. Also, the apostle Paul had access to other gospel writings or scriptures in his day as he's writing in Say 62 or 64 AD, uh, the Apostle Paul probably had access to the Gospel of Matthew, which had already been written, and maybe even a couple of others. Maybe the book of James. So when he says all scripture, those are the books he's talking about. All scripture, all scripture is inspired by God. Literally, God breathed. All scripture is God breathed. What does that mean? Everything written down in the Bible finds its ultimate origin in the mind of God. That's where it came from. Yes, Paul wrote it, but he was moved by the Spirit of God to write down literally God's thoughts. That's what 1 Corinthians 2 says. What you have in your Bible on Scripture, yes, are the thoughts of the Apostle Paul or some Bible writer. And at the same time, simultaneously, amazingly, somehow in the mystery of God, miraculously, we don't just have Paul's words, we also have God's words, God's thoughts written down. That's what the Bible is. It's amazing. It's amazing. So this is very important to be reminded of as Christians. As we go out into the world and we're assaulted by critics and skeptics all the time with their arguments and undermining the Bible, trying to escape accountability is really what they're trying to do, trying to change the conversation and distract and whatever else, undermining the Bible. Oh, it's just a human book. Oh, it's just an old book. Oh, it's just fairy tales. Oh, it's just archaic. It's just a bunch of thoughts of men. No, it's not. Second uh, Second Timothy 3.16, all Scripture that you have in your Bible is God-breathed. What is written there, God guaranteed it came from God's eternal, infinite, perfect mind intentionally had his prophets write it down exactly how he wanted through human agency. So the first five books of the Bible were written by Moses. We know that. Genesis to Deuteronomy, 1400 BC. So what you find in the book of Genesis is it comes from the mind of God the all-knowing creator and judge of the universe, the infinite one, the omniscient one. And he moved through Moses, who was preserving literal history and also getting direct revelation and wrote down in Genesis exactly what God wanted written down. So that when you go to the book of Genesis, you can have confidence in it, that it is inspired by God. It is breathed out by God. It is God's words, God's thoughts. You can count on it. It is accurate. It is without error. It is authoritative. It is binding. It is true, regardless of what the world has to say regardless of what so-called modern science has to say. So that's true of Genesis, Philemon, John, Revelation. doesn't matter. So a very, very important fundamental principle from a Christian point of view regarding the sanctity, purity, inerrancy, and authority and sufficiency of our Bible. We don't get to talk about it much. So all Scripture in the Bible, is God-breathed. It came from Him. And it is profitable. It is useful. See, there it is. What's more useful? The book of Philemon, Revelation, or John? Well, they're all equally useful. They are all God's thoughts. As a Christian, don't you want to know what God thinks about anything? You ever just thought, I wonder what God thinks about this? I would love to know what God thinks about this. I care about what God thinks about this. I want to think like God thinks about this. I wonder what God thinks about this. Well, the literal answer to that question is well it's right in the bible when you read the bible you know what god thinks about any given subject and the converse is also true we don't know what god thinks about anything if it's not in the bible i would challenge you with that tell me one thing that you know god thinks about but it has not been revealed in the bible the only way you could say something is well yeah jesus came to me in a night vision and here's what he told me told me he didn't tell you well that's direct revelation and i would say that's not happening today because god says that's not happening today so all scripture god breathes his thoughts profitable useful so philemon is just as useful as the book of acts or any other book in the bible profitable helpful helpful for four things for teaching to help us gain a body of knowledge that will help us in our walk in our christian life or if you're not a christian here this morning the information that we're going to teach out of Philemon should help you, even though you're not a Christian, the teaching, the body of knowledge. You're going to be confronted with truth. that you Maybe you've never heard it before. Maybe you've heard it before and you don't agree with it. Maybe you've heard it before and it's confusing. Maybe you hear it and you are convicted by it. Maybe you hear it and you're upset by it. Yeah, that happens. So it's profitable. Scripture is profitable for everybody. It doesn't matter where you're coming from if it's understood properly, if it's taught properly. So scripture is profitable for teaching. So we've got profitable stuff we're going to learn Philemon, from Philemon. I'm, I'm just looking forward to it. I'm going to learn along with you. Profitable for teaching, for reproof. What is reproof? Reproof is when you verbally correct someone. If you're a parent, you do this with your children. If you have a dog, you do this with your dog. If you, do, if you have a cat, you do this with your cat. And it doesn't matter. They don't listen. Reproof, verbal admonition. Then correction, that's when you make a mistake, when there's error, you use the Bible to correct the error because the Bible is without error. The Bible is truth. Reproof and correction, those are kind of uh, the negative things, but teaching and training in righteousness, those are positive. They balance each other. Teaching, that's disseminating disseminating information, the, the thoughts of God, and we also use scripture and it's helpful and profitable for training in righteousness. This training in righteousness is very practical. This is answering the questions of How you do things, how you walk the Christian walk, how you think, the way you should approach things practically in the everyday world. God cares about the practical. God wants to answer the question how to? How do I do something? Remember when the apostles approached Jesus and they always saw him going away early in the morning, in the dark, late at night, alone on a hill? What's Jesus doing? Oh, he's praying. Well, we don't do that. Does it for hours? He's so disciplined, he's so consistent. We don't we, we've only watched the Pharisees and how they pray and others who have modeled it. So they the apostles finally just had the courage. Jesus, can you teach us how to pray? Answering the question, how to? Jesus, how do we do something? And then he said, Here's how you do it. And that's what the Bible does. That's training in righteousness. Here's how you should do it. How to be married, what's your role? How to be a husband, how to be a wife, how to work hard, how to be a provider, how to discipline your kids. How to be a child, how to obey your parents, how to be a citizen in a pagan government, how to pay your taxes, how to follow the rules, how to obey the law, how to do anything that pleases God that he has clearly communicated through his Word? That's training in righteousness. How should I live this life as a Christian? And we use Scripture for that. Then it says, the purpose clause, verse 17. So we use the Bible, which is reliable, came from God, from his thoughts, totally perfect, authoritative. It has four purposes. Four ways to use it and there's a goal and that's verse 17 what is god's goal for all of us who are christians and even if you're not a christian his desire would be that you hear biblical truth so that you might be convicted of your sin so that you might realize you have a sin against your creator your creator whether you believe in him or not he is your creator you are accountable to him he is your judge he could also be your savior depending upon what you think and how you respond so that's the bible And the ultimate goal is this, whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, if you're not a Christian, hopefully you become a Christian by repenting and embracing Jesus Christ as your Savior. Oh, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Then he changes you, makes you a child of God and adopts you into his family. He forgives and wipes away all of your sins, puts his Holy Spirit to live in you, and now you're a new creation, and you live this life as a Christian seeking help from his word, the reservoir of truth, verse 17, with the ultimate goal so that the man of God, the woman of God, you just put Christian, so that the true born-again Christian can do what? May be adequate. May be adequate or equipped for every good work. Some translations say may be thoroughly equipped because that's what it means. This is a reference to total sufficiency. You have everything you need in to live this life In a fallen world, a sinful world, as a fallen, finite, sinful person, we as Christians have everything we need in the reservoir of God's word. That's what verse 17 is saying. It is all there. If you're a Christian, we don't need anything else. That's total sufficiency. Sufficiency of salvation in Christ. Sufficiency of the Holy Spirit that literally lives in me. Sufficiency of God's word that has all the answers to life sufficiency of the local church the body of christ your spiritual family sufficiency of supernatural prayer that is a gift that god has given us sufficiency of total forgiveness of sins past present and future sufficiency for our future because our future is sure because of our relationship in jesus christ for all eternity that is sufficiency it's exciting to be a christian in light of all these truths that is the promise of scripture So with that great, amazing truth, let's go with teachability, a humble spirit, enthusiasm, if you will, to see what we might learn out of this wonderful book or epistle or letter called Philemon. Let's go ahead and look at it together. And I'll just kick off some introductory thoughts. So why are we studying this? Because it literally is giving us the thoughts of Almighty God in writing. Well, there's a couple of other reasons why we should study Philemon. The Apostle Paul, in his third missionary journey, he went to Ephesus, pagan city, pagan to the core. Think Santa Cruz. Think San Francisco. Think every major city in America. Think every major city in the world. There are no Christian cities. So Paul goes into this major city called Ephesus, totally pagan, immorality everywhere, idolatry, lasciviousness it's just it's terrible but he loved the people there he goes in starts preaching talking to people developing friendships preaching the gospel loving people enduring persecution and then boom somebody gets saved and then another person gets saved then he starts building this church of forgiven sinners teaching them pouring his life and love into them and he did the entire city he infiltrated over the course of three plus years there wasn't a corner in this massive metropolis of ephesus that didn't hear the gospel of jesus christ and he pastored there. He planted a church there. He poured his life into the city of Ephesus and the church there that he began. Absolutely amazing. Then he had to go on to the next city and plant another church. God made him a church planner as an apostle. And so after three and a half years, you get attached to people after three and a half years if you like people. Sometimes it's hard to leave, especially in the church. You develop heartstrings and relationships that go deep. So this was painful for Paul to leave, He knew it was God's will, and so he's going to leave this beautiful, blessed church that he planted and pastored for three years and got to know these people, and he was in all their homes, preaching the gospel, leading Bible study, praying with them, ministering to them, giving them counsel, solace, comfort, guidance, just an incredibly faithful pastor. Uh, He did it sacrificially. He worked hard. He was the hardest worker there was. He didn't take money. He didn't do the ministry for a buck. motivated by the love of christ and care for the people and basically he did it by blood sweat and tears so that when he was done and leaving the city he warned them and said i've got to go now but i love you and he called all the elders of ephesus unto himself for a meeting an elders meeting he could have had a dozen or two people we don't know how many elders were there but it was a plurality of these godly men that he absolutely loved and he gave an entire Uh, exhortation to them in acts chapter 20 warning them telling them how to be good pastors good shepherds uh how to take care of the sheep but also things to look out for watch out false teachers from outside false teachers and compromisers even from within the church of people who you thought were your friends be warned love the people work hard why because that's what i did paul said that's what i did for you for three years I worked hard. I lost sleep. I loved the people. I served you. I went from house to house three and a half years, day after day, night after night. I never took your money. I loved the people. I loved Jesus. And I wasn't a one-trick pony, just one theme, one tangent I was always harping on. But he made this amazing statement in Acts chapter 20, verse 27, that I gave you the whole counsel of God. I preached to you. The full counsel of God. And what that means is Paul gave comprehensive truth from divine revelation. Everything the Bible had to say. Everything that God wanted him to say. He gave them a full picture. Not a myopic, stilted, unbalanced view of God or of truth. You tell the truth, the whole truth. And nothing but the truth. The whole truth. Don't leave anything out. And nothing but the truth. So Paul was committed to the whole counsel of God. And so that's one of the reasons we want to preach on Philemon. It is included in the canon. It's part of God's truth. It provides a unique perspective on reality, on the thoughts of God, on how to live our life. That if you didn't have Philemon, you wouldn't know about that. Or at least you wouldn't know it to the fullness that you can as a result. You will be challenged. You will be edified. You will be encouraged as we read it, understand it ask the Holy Spirit of God to work on our hearts. It will also increase our faith because Romans ten seventeen says, faith comes by hearing and hearing a word about Christ. That's supernatural divine revelation. That's what Philemon is. It's a book about Christ. It's a beautiful picture, really, of Jesus Christ and His loving, merciful work as a Savior. And as we see that, It's going to grow your faith if you're a Christian. So there's just three reasons why we're going to benefit from looking at Philemon. So just a few things about the book of Philemon by way of introduction. I said earlier it was written by the Apostle Paul. It's interesting. We read in the book of Acts where, remember when Paul went to, I mean he was in prison, jail in Philippi for one night in Acts 16. But then after that he ended up in prison in Caesarea by the Mediterranean there for two years. Two years thanks to felix and festus the compromised roman governors there and those two years virtually are a time of silence as far as we know we have no epistles written by paul we have no testimony of ministry that was being done from the apostle paul it's kind of like two years of silence it's amazing which is totally atypical of paul he was just go, go, go. Then, after Caesarea, he, he says, I appeal to Caesar. And so they grant him that request. Okay, yeah, you are a Roman citizen. You, you are granted. You will get to see Caesar. His name is Nero. And we will send you to Rome. And so that's what they did. So he went on that trip. We saw that, sailed, and he finally makes it to Rome, him and Luke and some other brothers. And then immediately he's basically put under house arrest, incarcerated, chained, probably to Roman soldiers, as I said earlier. And he's waiting there for two years. But during this time, as he's in prison for two years, he's not going to do nothing. He's actually highly productive. He writes as many as five of his letters during that time. And one of those is Philemon. So Paul's very active. He's got access to his friends. They're encouraging him. They can come and go. They can visit, even though he's chained to these Roman soldiers. He's doing church in prison uh by the way philemon is called a prison epistle there are four of those in your new testament four prison epistles that paul wrote and that means these epistles were written while he was in prison in rome chained to these roman soldiers he's dictating probably to a close friend who's actually writing his stuff down guided by the spirit the other prison epistles are ephesians colossians and philippians Which make, makes sense. I mean, Philippians chapter 1 says he's in prison. And he's he's preaching the gospel. You can't shut Paul up. It says the whole praetorian guard has heard about Jesus. Because the impact Paul is having with the gospel. In addition to that, knowing that he's in prison, when you read Ephesians 6, called the armor of God. You know, you do that in Wana and VBS. The chest plate of righteousness, the helmet of sword of the spirit, uh, boots, soldiers' boots, gospel of peace, the belt of truth. Where did Paul, what is that? Well, that's Roman pagan, Roman soldier imagery and armory as he's writing Ephesians 6. Because he's literally chained to as many as who knows how many Roman soldiers in full garb Looking at him, talking to whoever it is, it's Tertius or whoever's his secretary. And he's talking about each piece of armor from head to toe. Whoever that centurion is. And put on your helmet and put on your sword. Who knows what they were thinking when Paul put on your sword? What, you Christians, you vigilantes, there's going to be an insurrection. Paul's talking spiritual warfare. Very interesting. So anyway, that's the prison epistles of the four prison epistles. This is a personal letter. This is to one individual. It's to Philemon. The others are to churches, church in Ephesus, Philippians, Colossians. So that's unique. He has 13 epistles that he wrote, and this is one of four personal letters. Remember when Paul wrote two to Timothy? It's kind of young protege. Paul had been training him in a lot of ways, taking the mantle or the gauntlet from Paul to continue the ministry. So he wrote two to Timothy to encourage him as a pastor, leader, evangelist, overseer in the church. Then he wrote one to Titus, and then this one to Philemon. So that's why it's unique. It is the shortest of Paul's letters. I mentioned that earlier. It's 25 verses in your English Bible. When Paul wrote this, it wasn't put into verses. That was done hundreds of years later, and it wasn't translated into English. It was written in Greek, the language of the people at the time. It has 355 Greek words. That's how short it is, but it's powerful. Uh, written for a about 61, 62. It's written the same time probably as Colossians and Ephesians. And this letter is written to this man named Philemon. Philemon lives in Colossae. So Paul's writing Philemon. He's also writing the letter Colossians and Ephesians. And Ephesians was in Asia Minor, close to Colossae. And so they didn't have email. They didn't have airplanes. They didn't have FedEx. They didn't have... Texting. They didn't have telephones. They didn't have Skype. They didn't have FaceTime. They didn't even have, like, Morse code and all that stuff. So, when you had to send an important letter over a thousand miles away, how do you do it? Well, you you had limited options. But Paul actually had somebody who was willing to put his life on the line to travel over a thousand miles. Paul almost died coming to Rome. And every time you traveled that far in those days, you were literally putting your life on the line. So he's got a, a courageous volunteer, Tychicus is his name, a disciple of the Apostle Paul, who's going to carry the book of Ephesians, the book of Colossians, and now the book of Philemon back to Ephesus, then to Colossae, and deliver those letters to those churches there so that they'll be read and circulated to the early church. So Philemon is going along, this book is going along with Colossians uh, and Philemon, and Philemon lived at the church of Colossae. So that's its destination. Like I said, this is a very personal letter. There's not a whole lot of heavy-duty doctrine like you would find either in Hebrews or Romans. To me, those are two of the most difficult, complicated books. Uh, That's why I haven't preached on those yet. But anyway, still studying. Um, So this is one of the most personal, practical, understandable, but it's absolutely beautiful. And even though it's not heavy in terms of overt doctrine, it is utterly built on the foundation of deep biblical truth that we're going to see. Another reason that I wanted to study the book of Philemon is because it does intersect with so much practical truth that we're going to take some stops along the way to talk about it because we usually don't get to talk about these things, these issues that are so relevant in our day and age. For example, authority and submission. That that is a universal principle. And you and I are in a, a matrix designed by God, whereby we function in terms of authority and submission. Women aren't the only ones who have to submit. Men have to submit. I have to submit. I have too many things I have to submit to. I can't even keep track. I have to submit to the government and the laws and those above me and on and on it goes. The speed limit. Oh, I hate that one. But I need to submit. Submit. So this epistle just clearly brings that to the surface, this issue of authority. And we're going to talk about it. And that can be very controversial in the Christian community, authority and submission. Who do you submit to? Who do you not submit to? If you are pro-life and you believe you're against abortion, where does authority and submission play into that? What's legitimate from God's point of view? What's not legitimate? Should Christians be going to Planned Parenthood clinics standing on the front porch with their arms out, trying to block women going into Planned Parenthood? Or worse, should we be putting padlocks on the front door of Planned Parenthood so nobody can get in? Or worse, should we be blowing up Planned Parenthood abortion centers? These are just some of the issues that are relevant today. Authority and submission. Have you heard anything? Have you, If you've been watching the news, have you heard anything about immigration? Anyway, uh, so that's what, you know, the, the country is torn over the issue of immigration right now. Does the Bible have anything to say about that? Does that intersect with the truth of authority and submission? Absolutely. And we're actually going to see that in Philemon. It's amazing how parallel the truths are of modern-day controversies in the political and social world that we're bombarded with every single day in the news about Immigration. And what the right and virtuous and moral approach to it all is. And how there are principles clearly in Scripture on that issue. We're going to see those in Philemon. Slavery, that's a big one. This is overt in talking about slavery because Philemon, get this. Philemon is a Christian and a friend of Paul and probably got saved through the ministry of the apostle Paul. And Philemon is a slave owner. He, he's a slave owner after he got saved. Oh, I didn't know you could be a Christian and be a slave owner. Well, Philemon apparently is. Can you imagine if Philemon, if we had a big marble statue of Philemon today that was like 20 feet tall in public, in the public square at Washington D.C. or major city? They would tear it down. People would tear it down. Oh, he was a slave owner! And they'd rip the, the statue down and smash it to pieces with a sledgehammer. Because how do I know that? Because that's what's happening today. So we're going to talk about slavery. It's in the Bible. It's in the New Testament. It's in the Old Testament. It's in this book. Well, slavery is not an issue today. Really? Wow. Did you know that there are countries that ordain and sanction slavery today? Many. Did you know that there are estimated over 45 million people today who are slaves of other people? basically considered almost subhuman, considered property of their master. For example, in China, the largest country in the world, with nearly 1.4 billion people, one of the largest demographically in terms of the geography and the land that they own, China has almost 18 million people who you could call slaves. Just in one country, 18 million. Russia has over a million different slaves. I mean, we're talking illegitimate, hardcore, ungodly slavery. North Korea, the Philippines, Bangladesh, Nigeria in Africa. That's one of the worst in the world today. It's everywhere. And there are Christians living in every one of those countries that I just mentioned. So slavery is an issue. You know how long slavery has been around? Since sin was committed after Adam and Eve, pretty much. The seeds were planted, then it developed, then it became institutionalized, and it's been around for all of human history. We know it was en masse in Egypt largest nation of the day in the days of Moses and even before that. That's what the whole book of Exodus is about. Pharaoh, king of the earth, slave master, slave driver, enslaving two million Israelites, Jews. That's 1400 BC. And then you can just go through history. So, you know, it's not America that was the only one subject to slavery. It's been all throughout human history. Why do you have slavery? Because People are sinful and wicked, that's why. So we'll talk about that. It's important. We're also going to look at some ecclesiology. Uh, what's ecclesiology? That's the study of the church and how a church should function in practical ways that I think we're going to learn from. Uh, we will answer the question, what, is it, what are we to be doing living in a pagan? How do we behave as Christians Because living in a pagan society? What should our attitude be towards those in power who don't love Christ? They're pagan to the core. They're not Christian. That always comes up around election year, whether it's two years or four years, and all these Christians get their different opinions, and some tell us, well, you should vote for the best Christian candidate. And usually the problem is, is there one? And really? Is that the biblical answer? Just just vote for the best Christian candidate? I know U.S. presidents that were Christian or went to a Baptist church or Presbyterian church or a Methodist church, and they were horrible presidents and horrible people. So we're going to talk about that because Paul is living in a pagan society. He is imprisoned unjustly by the authorities, the Roman pagan government. He's about to go have trial before the worst pagan king in the history of planet Earth, Nero bloodthirsty murderer. And never in any of Paul's epistles do we see him say any bad word about Nero. He never tries to stir up an insurrection to overthrow Nero. He never talks about trying to escape from prison while he's confined by Nero. He never talks about retaliating against the horrible Nero. As a matter of fact, Paul says just the opposite, which is a great example and model for us. Because we live under pagan rulers from mayors to local governors to city councilmen to congresspeople to the governor to the senators and on and on it goes. So we're no different than Paul and the Bible lays out how we should live in light of we live in a pagan society. How do we respond to these pagan rulers? Well, I think we're going to learn some important principles modeled by Paul. Uh, we're going to talk about civil disobedience. Is it legitimate or not? And when, if so. We're going to talk about the character of God because the character of God is front and center in this wonderful little letter. And probably one of the most dominant overt themes in Philemon is the issue of forgiveness, which speaks to the heart and the character of God, forgiveness. And that's a timely lesson. We always need a reminder as Christians about forgiveness, don't we? Because as sinners and as finite and fallen people, we are prone to hardness of heart. We are prone to unforgiveness. Anytime you live in proximity with another fallen, sinful human being, we fall into the temptation of being unforgiving towards that fellow sinner. That's just the heart of humanity. That's why this reminder over and over and over again, all throughout the New Testament to Christians is forgive, 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 forgive. A constant reminder for Christians Born again, Bible-believing, spirit-filled Christians have to be reminded continually, forgive, forgive. And not just forgive, you know, horrible wicked people, forgive fellow Christians. That's probably one of the most important lessons we're going to take away practically from Philemon, because it's actually kind of one of the overall, overarching, blatant themes in this book. So that's going to be beautiful. It's going to be timely. I need this reminder. Forgive. Forgive. Well, let's look at the first three verses just to kick it off here with some of that background. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother. So Paul's a prisoner in Rome, like I said, around 61-62. He's in house arrest, has some freedom. Says Timothy, Timothy didn't co-author this book with him, just means Timothy is with me. Timothy would sometimes be with Paul as he's doing his ministry and sometimes not because he's on errands or he's going to solve that problem or he's, and he could be gone months at a time away from the apostle Paul. Just so happens as he's writing Philemon, Timothy is probably there. Luke is also with Paul, much of his imprisonment in Rome, but he just includes Timothy. Why Timothy? He does this in a couple of epistles to establish the authority of Timothy. Timothy is the one I've been training for almost three decades. Timothy is a disciple of the Apostle Paul. Timothy's in church leadership. Timothy will continue the ministry of the Apostle Paul. He's endeared to the Apostle Paul. He calls him my child, my son. So Timothy has a very special place in Paul's heart personally, but also in terms of oversight and leading the church. So he's establishing Timothy's authority for the future for these Christians. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. By the way, he's a prisoner. Why? Because he did something wrong? No, for obeying God. That's how he got arrested and got in jail, for boldly preaching Jesus Christ, for boldly not compromising. This happens to Christians all over the world. Rarely does it happen for us here in America. But maybe the scales are starting to tip a bit. Maybe you've felt it at different levels in your workplace or even in your family life not overtly being thrown into prison, but being mocked, undermined, made fun of, ostracized. It happens all the time. And yeah, same with the Apostle Paul. He's a prisoner of Jesus Christ. He's a prisoner, not of Nero. He's a prisoner, not of Rome. He's a prisoner of Jesus Christ. This is sovereignty. God is in charge. Jesus knows Paul's a prisoner. Jesus knows Paul's. Didn't do anything wrong. Jesus knows it is unjust. And Paul is content with that. He's not whining. He's not complaining. He's not getting a petition written to get himself free. As a matter of fact, Paul knew ahead of time. He told the disciples, you know, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. and I'm going to get arrested. And he consigned himself to the will of God. This is God's sovereignty. He believed God was totally, utterly in control and in charge of all things in life. And you can trust him. Put your trust in god he's the sovereign one he is on the throne nothing happens apart from his perfect will i am a prisoner of christ jesus i am in the center of his will i told this story years ago where when i was in college as a new christian maybe even saved about a year and a half man i was a worrywart i worried about everything just High anxiety, can't sleep, worrying about everything, fretting about everything, the littlest things, the big things. And I went to my pastor to ask him for some counsel and advice on a very practical issue. And I was looking for some just profound, theological, hidden answer that I'd never heard of before that's going to put me at ease and solve all my problems and take care of those people that were bothering me. Anyway, so I, I told my problem. And the response from the wise counselor, seasoned pastor, asked me, or they just made a statement and said, well, Jesus is still on the throne. So I poured out my heart, here's my problem. And the answer was, well, Jesus is still on the throne. And there's this, this blank stare from my pastor. Silent. I was like, well, that's it? I got church membership and that's it? Jesus is still on the throne? Yeah. Totally sovereign, totally in control. He'll take care of it. You got to trust him. And I, I never went back to him for counsel again (laughs) to this day. But I've actually never forgot that to this day. That was, wow, 1987. Utterly profound i think i understood it about 15 years later the light went on oh oh that's what he was saying oh okay that's why i don't need to be anxious okay all right now that i've got three ulcers okay got it well paul understood that he lived by that principle prisoner of jesus christ totally sovereign encouraged by other believers around him despite the injustice and his letter is addressed to Philemon. Well, who's Philemon? Well, just briefly, Philemon said he was a slave owner. Philemon actually lived in the city of Colossae. Colossae, so we talked about Ephesus in Paul's third missionary journey. goes there. It's in Asia Minor. It's uh, close to the sea. Ephesus is like was a seaport. And then if you go about 100 miles to the east was Colossae, a small town. And by Colossae was another small town called Laodicea. Sound familiar? Laodicea. That's the naughty church in Revelation. And all those seven churches of uh, Revelation are in that area. Well, if you read the book of Acts, Colossians, Colossae, that never comes up in the book of Acts. It's like, wait, so Philemon is a Christian. He knows Paul. He's at a church in Colossae, but Paul never went to Colossae. So how did that happen? Well, I already told you, Paul spent three years in Ephesus, preached everywhere, Christians were going everywhere, it was a hub of traffic and travel, and nearby cities were dependent upon Ephesus for many things, and Colossae was one of those, and Colossae, so the ministry of the Apostle Paul spilled over from Ephesus, a hundred miles into Colossae and surrounding areas, including Laodicea there. And so that's where Philemon got saved. He got saved through the ministry of the Apostle Paul, somehow, maybe Philemon just came into town and just met some Christians and was, went to the Bible study and... Got saved. We don't know how, but it definitely got saved through the ministry of the apostle Paul. Then he went back and Paul spent time with Philemon. Much time they became uh, good friends, fellow workers as a matter of fact in the ministry because the end of verse one says, Philemon, a beloved, so a beloved brother, I love him dearly. Philemon, I know you, I love you, we have a relationship, we are one in Christ. Not only do I love you as a fellow Christian, you were a fellow worker with me. So he wasn't just an average lay Christian listening to Paul's sermons. He was actually entrenched in the ministry shoulder to shoulder with the Apostle Paul. That's the word fellow worker. It's one Greek word. It's a technical term. He ministered along Paul. I personally believe it could very well be that Philemon was one of the elders or pastors at the church of Colossae. That's how significant he is. I say that because the term is fellow worker, fellow minister, totally beloved, a man of authority. He's writing to him. Uh, not only that, he notes that, thank you, by the way, for opening up your home where the church meet. The church in Colossae was meeting in the house of Philemon. So, which tells us Philemon was not a slave like hundreds of thousands of Roman citizens were, just lowly slaves at the time. Philemon was different. He was not a slave. He was a landowner. He was wealthy. He had property. He owned a home. He could host others. He could be benevolent towards others he was self-sufficient, he was respected, he had money, he had material, he had wealth, he had possessions. By the way, that is not sinful, that is not evil, that is not wicked, that doesn't violate the Bible. Some people, some Christians have a wacky view of money. And it goes to both ends of the spectrum. With the health, wealth, and prosperity that over here, if, if you love God, you're obedient, have enough faith, then the blessing and sign of God's blessing in your life will be health, wealth, and prosperity, and lots of money. Well, that's a lie. And we see it much in evangelical Christianity today, especially on television. Then there's the other extreme. God doesn't like rich people. God doesn't like money. Uh, Evil is money, by the way. Money is the root of all evil, as they misquote the verse in James. And being without or poor or less than is more spiritual. No, it's not. Christians throughout history even have twisted it even further. Not only is being poorer and without and poverty-stricken more spiritual, because that's why many monks throughout church history took vows of poverty, because they were trying to reach a higher level of spirituality than the rest of those people. That's not more spiritual. And on top of that, some Christians have taken a step further to even become uh, to emaciate themselves and uh, intentionally look grubby and dirty and smelly and stinky that is not spiritual what is that that's smelly and stinky that's what that is could actually be a health risk contrary to what jesus actually said wash your face that's what he said it's not spiritual So anyway, uh, Philemon, he was wealthy. Uh, we also pointed out that he was a slave owner. What's up with that, Pastor Cliff? Well, that's what this letter is addressing. This is really important. I remember as a new Christian, I've been saved, I don't know, a year or two. And I'll close with this because this is just all introductionally in the foundation. But that that was a huge stumbling block for me when I was a Christian studying the Bible as a brand new believer 20 years old, 21, is like and I remember just talking to a critic of the faith, and they 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 stumped me. Well, your Bible doesn't have any errors, your Bible's relevant, your Bible's a, the truth of God, your Bible belongs to a loving God. Then how come it doesn't condemn slavery? As a matter of fact, your Bible condones slavery. No, it doesn't? Yeah, it does. And then they showed me a couple Bible verses where I'm like, whoa. So I I panicked and I did my research looking for a verse in the New Testament where it says, thou shalt not have any slaves. And I I didn't find it in the New Testament. Well, it's got to be in the Old Testament. Maybe it's commandment number 11 that nobody talks about. That, no, it wasn't there either. Thou shalt have no slaves. And then it turns out just the opposite was true. The Bible does talk about slavery and not one time is it ever condemned or are Christians or believers told to eradicate it wholesale as an institution in one fell sloop as their priority mission here on planet Earth? Whoa. Does that mean God condones slavery? Absolutely not. Does that mean slavery is good? Absolutely not. There are principles that play into that, that really answer a bigger question with respect to slavery. And the Bible addresses the sin that is the foundation and the motivation for slavery. And that's where the Bible attacks relentlessly. And that's where the war needs to be waged. So those are just some introductory thoughts about this wonderful study we have the privilege of doing as we look at Philemon together for the next couple of weeks. And like I said, I purposely was diverging on tangents of, I think, pertinent issues that are relative to our life today. And Philemon is going to inform us, but at the same time, we're not going to lose God's focus of his main concern in the book of Philemon, because it's a beautiful message. It's really about forgiveness, which ultimately comes, we are commanded as Christians to forgive, and what's the reason why? We forgive because Christ has forgiven you and me. And Christ only forgives if you recognize who He is, as the God-man in the flesh who came down to be the willing Savior on the cross, to absorb the wrath of God the Father in His body on the cross in place of your sin and my sin that condemned us to hell forever. And then he was buried and rose again from the dead and ascended on high and reigns as King of kings and Lord of lords. And he's seeking savior or sinners to come to himself that they might be saved and know him as their blessed savior. That's our heart's desire for those who don't know Christ. Let's go ahead and pray and thank the Father for our time. Father, we thank you for this day and our morning together. The beautiful worship we're able to have through song, through the reading of Scripture, through fellowship and encouragement with the saints, by talking to you in prayer and also studying your word together. God, remind us of these truths that have come to the surface out of your word that intersect with our own personal lives and the lives of those we rub shoulders with. And we, we thank you that your word is sufficient in all things. And God, help us with your Holy Spirit to live with courage and obediently that we might be a blessing to others, giving you all the glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.